Hello, guys, gals, and non-binary pals. Welcome back to another episode of Science in Podcast, presented by Science in Pictures magazine. As always, I am one of your hosts, Madison Dix, here with my co-host. And I'm the other one. Jared Adelman. <laughs> Him. As per usual, we've come back again this week, crept into your ears to, uh, to try to take the headache out of peer-reviewed scientific literature. We're going to do our darndest. And also, as always, thank you if you're listening. Big thank you right up top. Thank you for supporting our itty-bitty seedling of a podcast. We're growing, and with your help, hopefully we'll become a tree one day. Uh, it will help us grow if you also rate, review, and subscribe this podcast, uh, subscribe to this podcast. So that would really help us out. Um, if you've already followed us on Instagram and Facebook, a big extra thank you. We post relevant pictures and information on there every week that has to do with our episode. So it's a fun also a lot of involved. Also, what? A lot of memes. Lots of memes. If you like memes, you'll like us, friends. So, yeah, that is uh, science underscore in underscore pictures. Nope, that's not us at all. That's our host. But uh, <laughs> you can follow science and pictures on Instagram and then also science underscore in underscore podcast on Instagram, science and podcast on Facebook. And uh, find these episodes wherever you found this one. Pete and Cheryl, my parents, also had some good feedback about our last episode. They liked that it was shorter. <laughs> um, and they liked that it was relevant in that they know what an anole is. Oh, well, that's good. <laughs> so that was good. Um, we got actually a lot of good feedback. Thank you all for your feedback about our last episode, about our shorter length and our new format. So we're going to continue with that, which means our next corner is our fun fact corner. Do you have a fun fact for us this week, Jared? I do. So I finished that fungus book I was telling you about, uh, Entangled Life, I think it's called, even though it's downstairs, so I'm not going to go look for it. Um, but what I learned is that fungus has this, probably has this, no, fungi probably have this way of communicating with their own quote-unquote body that we still cannot understand. There have been measurable electric impulses measured on fungal networks, but no one can really find out yet the reason for them or what they do. And a big reason for that is because there are very few people studying fungi compared to other organisms. Um, so, you know, for anyone interested in an entire field that people have barely even looked at, uh, go into fungi because they're really cool. Yeah, more people need to go into fungi because I need to learn more about them. They are fascinating. That's so really cool. interesting. So electrical impulses is how our brain communicates with our body. Am I wrong? Um, electrical impulses combined with hormones. Yeah. Okay. So maybe they've got a similar thing going on. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, to call it an intelligence is even another way to put it, even though we don't really know enough to say it yet, but some people are conjecturing that we can sort of use fungi to build living computers because of the way that they spread electricity throughout their bodies. And there's even this guy that is studying how to make an entire building out of fungi with an electrical system inside of it that basically runs and self-repairs itself and does its own climate control. Um, wow. So yeah, there's a lot going on right now that no one is talking about because so few people are talking about it. All right. Every tell everyone you know about fungi. Yeah, they're cool, this man. podcast. <laughs> oh, also, there's this guy who trained fungi to not only uh, eat a cigarette butt, but also several kinds of pesticides. They just happen to have the enzymes in their DNA that if they pull out the right one, they can basically get rid of 
almost any kind of human waste we made so far, including radioactive substances, because fungi are just that awesome. Really? Fungi can eat radioactive substances? We kind of found that out by accident based on uh, studying the things that are now living around Chernobyl. I was, that was going to be my next question. I was like, did they uh-huh. go into Chernobyl to find that out? Oh, they sure did. That's fascinating. All right. Let's see if I can top it. I have another fun fact this week. My fun fact is about sea slugs. Ooh. Yeah. So I learned that there is a species of sea slug, Alicia marginata. Um, it's a photosynthetic species of sea slug. And they discovered that this sea slug can self-decapitate. It can chop Whoa. off its own head. And then grow an entire new body. What? <laughs> yeah. And when I say chop off its whole like head, like I mean de- disconnect its head from like its heart and all of its organs, all of it. Wow. Right off. So is this unique to that species or like their own group of slugs, or is this thought to be widespread in sea slugs? So so far it's been observed in Alicia marginata, and it's assumed to probably also be the case in a closely related species, Alicia atroveritis, um, because they're really closely related and are both photosynthetic. Um, but it's it's a pretty new <laughs> new discovery. That is really cool. Yeah, it's super interesting. Uh, they think they might do it to rid themselves of parasites. Oh. Yeah. Um, and it only takes three weeks for them to grow a whole new body from their head. That's so cool from like an evolutionary standpoint. It's less of a cost to grow your own body than deal with the constant burden of parasites. Right? (laughs) That's really cool. Yeah. So like the wound from the head only takes about a day to heal. And then it takes, I know. And then it takes them only three weeks to grow a whole new body. (laughs) And one of the slugs observed in the study that I read actually did this twice. Twice. (laughs) Twice. Right. One right after the other. Wow. Maybe a little body of dysmorphia going on. <laughs> <laughs> sea slugs are wild, man. They I remember are. I was fascinated for the longest time over those sea slugs that borrow um, stinging cells from jellies in their larval stages. Yeah. It so is the coolest thing. Similar. But instead of borrowing stinging cells, it borrows chloroplasts. I wonder, is that so a widespread? Like how it can survive without its heart and the rest of its body is that it just survives on photosynthesis until it grows a new body. Oh, that is amazing. I can't, I can't do this right now. That's setting so many fires in my head. I okay. can't do this right now. I can't. <laughs> this, our paper is not even about fungi or sea slugs, even though those are both amazing. Um, wow, that's incredible. We're going to talk a little bit about that later, but. I mean, I could wow. cover that article. Can you? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. I'll yeah, cover yeah, that yeah. one next. We learned a little bit about it already, but. I want to know more. I'll be able to make a whole episode of it. We'll see. Okay, let's do it. Um, for those of you who are interested, the scientist on that article, her name is Sakaya Mito. And she is a PhD candidate at Nara Women's University in Japan. I probably mispronounced her name, and I'm sorry about it. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a very cool paper, though. Yeah. All right. But on to our uh, next corner, which stands yeah, from... Papers. Speaking oh, of <laughs> you know, the thing our podcast is about? Yeah, we should probably do yeah. that. So I know this episode is neither about fungi nor sea slugs. What is it about? Dinosaurs. Dinosaurs? And What's the title of the paper? The paper is 
I'm getting chills just thinking about it again, like literally. Have you ever read a paper that just like, it scratches every single science itch you might be having at the moment and you're just reading it and then you read it again and again and again and it's, it's, it's good. It's good. Oh, Jared, it's so exciting. Yeah. Jared has a crush on this paper, guys. I do have a crush on this paper. Also, this was bordering on something that like someone fresh out of high school could get into reading. So I might even recommend reading this to anyone who's listening right now. But anyway, we're going to talk about it. So uh, oh. this paper is called, yeah, um, The Influence of Juvenile Dinosaurs on Community Structure and Diversity. Um, this was published, I'm going to keep going, <laughs> in Science uh, by scientists Caitlin Schroeder, uh, S. Kathleen Lyons, and Felisa A. Smith. Uh, Dr. Smith is a professor and laboratory head at the University of New Mexico, where she studies animal body size and the evolutionary slash ecological trade-offs that different sizes entail. Uh, Caitlin Schroeder is a PhD candidate in Dr. Smith's lab, studying late-stage dinosaur fossils uh, located in Canada. And uh, Dr. Lyons is a mammal uh, person. She studies, uh, well, she's a professor at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, and her research includes a lot of things. Uh, including extinctions um, and community responses to climate change and broad scale, like really broad scale ecological trends over time. Love that all three scientists are women. Happy International Women's Day, by the way. Indeed. Um, so, <laughs> what's up? I said that worked out well. It did, it did. <laughs> well done, Jared. Thank you. So I have a few terms for you, uh, most of which you, I'm sure you've already heard. Uh, my first key term for you is genus. What is the genus? genus? All right. So a genus is the part before species. Um, so it's a it's a categorization. And I don't know how to define it. It's just it, genus species is a scientific name. That's what I'll get. Yeah. Um, before is an interesting way of saying it. I would instead say above. Um, because it's basically the next level of classification that's broader than species. Um, uh, genre, or which is the plural of genus, and just a really fun word. Uh, genre are the, yeah, they're the next level of classification above species. So a genus always contains at least one species and often joins other genera inside a family, which is the next level. Okay, so like if we're looking at evolution as a tree, and we have a big thick branch that's the family, and then branching off from that branch are three smaller branches that are all genre or genuses. And then from each of those genus branches, we have the little twigs that are species. Yeah. So if we're talking uh, like people, for instance, we are Homo sapiens sapiens. So we're in the genus Homo. Um, our sister genus, which is of the chimpanzee, Pan. So Pan and Homo, those are, those are genre. And we're both mm -hmm. inside the family Hominidae. All right. Love it. Yeah, so we're all human-like primates. We are literally humans, but they're human-like. All right, <laughs> smash genus. We know it. What's next? Next is species, which is similar. Oh, those are the twigs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so this one I had to bring up because it's probably going to be one of the more ambiguous ones for the foreseeable future. Because depending on the organism you're looking at, there is no agreement at all on a single true scientific definition for this term. Um, to some, I've noticed, uh, this. I've noticed yes. a lot of scientists recently arguing over whether like these are two separate species or the same species with slightly different characteristics, you know, mm -hmm. I see a lot of argument about it and I don't really know why they're arguing. It matters sometimes from like a conservation standpoint. Many of the arguments don't matter at all. Okay. They're just scientific uh, hubbub, hullabaloo. Nonsense. Nonsense. Yes. <laughs> 
So, um, to some, a species contains organisms that generally only reproduce with one another and often don't with anything else. That's the least problematic way to say that, pairing in times where species hybridize or mate with something out of their species. Um, okay. Which happens a lot in fish, um, fishes, it probably a lot of other groups of animals. Yeah, but... that's how we get a Townsend angelfish, is a queen angelfish mating with a blue angelfish. Hey, there you go. But yes, that is an example of hybridization, which is... What I just said, species mating with one another that aren't a member of, of their own species. Okay. Um, others so all argue human that... beings are the same species, for example. Uh, all domesticated dogs are the same species, which is why they can all breed, even though they look so different. Right? Yes. But can you think of any reasons why that definition might exclude some, a lot of things? Well, no. <laughs> what about organisms that are asexual, that don't need a partner? Are they not a species? Oh, shoot. Didn't even yeah. think about it. Yeah, what about those asexual reproducers? Where do they fall? Indeed. Where indeed? I don't have the answer for you. But um, okay. yeah, that's one problem with that one. Um, others argue that a species is a group of organisms that have evolved to fill a specific ecological role. And this is probably the best example of a species, but again, it's not one that works because for the vast majority of described species, we don't know their ecological role. Yeah, we know so, it's important, but we don't know exactly why. Exactly. Um, I read a book recently about parasitologists, and there are so many parasites out there that a lot of their job is just describing parasites without, not no knowledge, but little knowledge to what exactly they're doing inside that animal. They're just trying to catalog things. That's a lot like the beginnings of biology. I mean, back in Darwin's day, it was just people going out on boats, going to new islands and being like, there's a monkey, there's a bird, I drew you a picture, here you go. Yeah. So that's that's parasitology right now, huh? <laughs> yes. With the, you know, the, you're cutting up roadkill, which is the difference, but, um, or other things that you find uh, in the wild. But all right. Yeah, basically there you go, the folks. Thing. If you're interested in the kind of science where all you have to do is find a thing and tell people you found the thing, go into parasites. <laughs> <laughs> one, one very, very small subset, but yes. Yeah. Other scientists try to argue that you can use DNA to differentiate between species, but where is the line? Why are we the organism to tell things apart based on how much their DNA differs? Like, it's such an arbitrary standard that why would we even do that? But it does make sense in some cases. Like, for instance, the moon jelly, which for a lot of its uh, scientific life has been thought to be one species, is now considered a lot of different species that look exactly the same. Um, so it does make sense in that context to label them differently. But again, where is the line? Who gets to draw it? Just the person who has the most credentials? Like... All you're doing is reading the base pairs and seeing how different they are. Okay, so we're getting into the area of science that I don't have much patience for. <laughs> <laughs> the cataloging, the categorizing. See, this is why, because I just yeah. are categorizing. That's why I can't <laughs> do this kind of science. <laughs> it's a big headache. Um, but yeah. so uh, the bottom line is that th the term is unavoidably context dependent. There's no current definition that's one size fits all. But in our context, uh, for extinct ones like the non-avian dinosaurs, it's easiest to think of a species as organisms with extremely similar enough fossil remains, possibly with an inferred ecological role if there's enough evidence to say so. Okay. We and move next, forward with that definition. We will. Um, the next nonsense, we're almost done, is niche. Uh, this is not a nonsense. This is a jargon. Yes. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Get your corners straight, Oh, Jared. my head's in the wrong corner. Okay. <laughs> Come back to this corner. corner. Come back right now. <laughs> <laughs> We're not going to that corner anymore. That's later. I'm sorry. <laughs> All right. Niche, you said? Yes. 
All right, N-I-C-H-E. So mm-hmm. a niche is, well, when a species finds a niche, it's a place where they can survive, um, where there's not another creature already doing the thing that they're going to do there. A niche yes is and a no. opening. I'm sorry? A niche is a job opening. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's an ecological role, which is the one that that, that uh, we've been kind of alluding to so far. Um, so because our planet's natural resources are inherently limited, it's thought that only one species can assume a specific, specific niche at any given time. That's why competition for those roles exists. So it's not that it's a, it's, it's a role that is only open to them. It's a role that they're holding. And if something kicks them out, then it kicks them out. All right. So it's a job. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, it's a job without the bureaucracy of like at will employment. <laughs> yeah, there's no paperwork at all um, yeah. because the trees are still trees at that point. Um, mm-hmm. And finally, uh, we have ontogeny or ontogenesis. Onto, ont, ont means life. Does it? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. I'm not making fun of you. I'm actually not sure. Um, ontogeny. But... My Latin is failing me. I don't know what this word means. So this is a fancy way of describing every part of or- of, of an, an organism's life, from fertilization, hey! if that happens, uh, through through maturity, old age, and death. So, life! Yeah, beginning to... Oh, you were right. Okay, yeah, beginning <laughs> to end. It's the total. All right, cool. Ontogeny, the study of an entire life. Indeed. And so ends the jargon corner. All right, that was some... Tasty jargon. Indeed. And it's going to be increasingly relevant. Um, so to the paper. Um, mm-hmm. Madison, do you remember that picture I sent you last week with the dinosaurs and the mammals all lined up by size? I did, and I will be posting it on the Instagram. Uh, for now, would you like to describe it to the listeners? Um, from the best of my memory, there's two little lines, and we have a bunch of mammals lined up on one line, and you see them lined up basically from small to big and there's two clusters. Um, and then there's a dinosaur line and you see them lined up from small to big and there's two clusters, but the clusters are in different places. Um, yes and no, there wasn't much of a cluster. It was, it was more of like a solid spectrum in the mammal one. Do you want me to describe it again? <laughs> no, 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 no. no. <laughs> it was very, very good. I'm just trying to give context for the, uh, the uh, paper, but yes, yes, um, dinosaurs and mammals. The graph is basically showing the furry predators of modern South Africa's Kruger National Park. Um, Like pretty much any modern carnivore community, Kruger hosts carnivores across a range of sizes, reflecting the size of prey that those predators typically go after. The small species include things like mongooses, mongoose, what's the plural of mongoose? It would be really fun if it was mongoose. Um, Anyway, medium ones, mongoose, mongoose. Uh, medium ones like wild dogs and large ones are present as lions. And the graph has them basically all scaled up to, no, I think the dinosaurs are scaled down. Yeah. So the dinosaurs are scaled down to the size of Kruger's mammals and basically lines up proxies for the entirety of dinosaur history by size, not just one community like Kruger. And as you've mentioned, um, there is a pretty substantial gap in the predatory dinosaurs in what would be their medium size range. So, or do you have any initial guesses for why there might be such a big gap in the dinosaur line? Why would there be no medium dinosaurs? Um, oh gosh, I, I really don't know. So, 
I don't blame you for thinking so, because there's a lot of things weird about dinosaur diversity in general. Um, you could say it has a few eyebrow-raising qualities. For one thing, the overall diversity of any non-bird dinosaur was pretty confusingly low among fossil groups. Um, nearly all wait, dinosaurs- wait, wait, wait. First of all, is there any such thing as a non-bird dinosaur? All dinosaurs that aren't birds. But aren't all dinosaurs birds? All birds are dinosaurs. Um. <laughs> you know how um, all toads are frogs, but not all frogs are toads? I see. Thank you for yes. setting that up for me. All right, mm -hmm. continue. We're talking about a little family order classification, but yes. <laughs> um, where was I? Okay, so all non-bird dinosaurs. Yes. Um, their genre, all of them together, uh, contain nearly all of them, but like three or four, and that's speaking literally, contain only a single species. Even for fossil groups, that's a little weird. Um, the most recent estimate of all dinos in total, the ones that we haven't discovered yet and the ones we have, gives around 1,850 genera in total. By comparison, birds, the only living dinosaurs, have nearly beat them out at over 1,500 modern genera, with nearly 10,000 species. So almost okay. every bird genre has more than one species, and they've almost caught up to the dinosaur diversity in total. All right, so well, the bird branches have lots of little species twig. Yes. But whereas the dinosaur branches, the non-bird dinosaur branches, each only have one twig. Nearly, virtually all of them only have one twig, yes. That's There's like crazy. three or four. That That's only a have... weird looking tree, dinosaurs. What's up? Yeah, so, something seem a little fishy here to you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the uh, the paper's authors thought so too. Um, there's more. Um, additionally, in terms of all the dinosaurs together, there is a much, much greater proportion of huge or megafaunal dinosaurs, that's over 50 or 100 kilograms, depending on what scientist you are, um, compared to smaller ones. The It's way, way tipped in the balance of large dinos. And this oh, in okay, itself... Wait. I have a theory on this one. Okay, hit me. Didn't they live in a time where there was just a ton more oxygen and carbon dioxide and everything in the atmosphere, which let them get bigger? That has been debunked. Oh, good to know. Yeah. Nonsense, guys. Jared's <laughs> me right now. Oh, no! <laughs> it is a very, very, very common nonsense around... Ooh, I might have to do dinos for our squash nonsense episode. Anyway. We could do dinosaur nonsense for this our first full nonsense episode. I think that'd be great. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I like it. I like it. Yeah. Um, so, on brand. <laughs> very, very on brand. So in terms of the larger to smaller ratio, it's very counterintuitive um, from an ecological perspective, among other things, because smaller animals in general tend to have much larger populations and shorter generation times than larger ones, enabling them to evolve and potentially diversify and fill more habitats much faster. And because they're smaller, they can take up more habitat roles and they can further divide the environment amongst themselves, whereas a really, really, really large species would have trouble switching up its roles. Okay. Does that make sense? That's why we have a lot of small dinosaurs, is because they can much easier go in and find those jobs, those niches. That's the problem, though, is that there are a lot more larger dinosaurs known than smaller ones. Okay, so that's weird. It is weird. Um, especially when you consider their, their energetic needs as well, which is just kind of a big part of that. But They need to eat a lot, yeah. Yeah, so <laughs> again, why the huge bias towards megafauna? There are a couple of thoughts. Um, one could argue that smaller dinos are less likely to fossilize than larger ones because they have tinier, more delicate parts. Mm. The only problem with that assertion is that this statistical anomaly, anomaly uh, has already been accounted for in modern models. And for it to be true in this case... Around 90% of dinosaurs below 60 kilograms would have to be remain un undiscovered. That's 
a lot, and it's already thought that we've discovered around 30% of dinosaurs at this point. Yeah. So That's all I was going to say is, yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the math does not line up at all. Um, moreover, dinosaurs were the dominant land vertebrates for over 150 million years. That's a big chunk of Earth time. Um, whichever way you look at it, it would appear that something or things were limiting dinosaurs from becoming as diverse as other fossil groups, especially, especially considering the mid-range carnivorous dinos, which are the subject of our study. Mostly. There are others too. Um, our three authors took it upon themselves to find something that could sufficiently explain this gap. And here we go. Uh, for their analysis, our authors gathered data on size and species composition from 43 different dinosaur communities spanning every modern continent, because for a lot of the dinosaur times, the continents were together. Just um, one, Pangea. <laughs> indeed. It later split into Gondwana land and Laurasia, which doesn't matter for our study, but those are fun names. I was going to um, say, those sound like good names to like name your kid. <laughs> uh, coming from your theme from, from a few episodes ago, there's a really fun album uh, by King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard called Polly Gondwana Land. Well, that was a lot of words. It was a lot of words. It's a fun <laughs> band. Um, <laughs> Love it. Yes. Album um, <laughs> <laughs> That's an idea. Um, so yeah, every modern continent and including over 550 species across 136 million years. So most of the dinosaurs heyday. Okay, so uh, this is like a really broad study. They it is. did not leave anything unexplored. They were like, we're going to solve this problem. We're going to look at all the dinosaurs in all the places. They took all the stones, all the fossilized poops, and they turned them over. They turned them all over. All they right. They turned them over. Love it. Um, <laughs> so... These community data sets were plotted against the global dinosaur data. So they compared these 40, 43 communities they looked at and compared them to dino diversity in whole. They made a couple predictions. It was predicted that some communities would differ from the global pattern because of local specific ecological quirks. So some ecological competition or whatever it was would be affecting those communities and making them look different from the standard. Yeah. Does that make sense? It does. Like uh, there are some areas where the terrain and the environment is just really different. So you're going to see... Um, basically outliers. Yeah. Um, it was also predicted that carnivores and herbivores would present much, much different size distributions since things like competition would not have influenced carnivores and herbivores equally. There's a lot different kinds of competition for plant sources than animal sources, if that makes sense. Yeah, the plants don't move, animals do. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, when the community data was compared against global trends, the distribution of body sizes was pretty reliably bimodal overall. Bimodal being you see two peaks. So again, there's a gap in the middle. All right. So bimodal is when there's two big clusters and nothing in between. Yes. Okay. Um, this means that the same gap between small and large dinos was pretty consistently found over space and time. There wasn't nothing, but the diversity was pretty paltry in that area. Um, additionally, both predictions oh, were- Only tall and, wait, no, I was going to make a Starbucks reference, but I forgot the sizes. <laughs> tall, grande, venti. Okay, so only tall and venti dinosaurs, no grande. Is grande also big in Italian? Because then why would they go from Spanish to Italian? Listen, tall is English for large. Grande is- This is true. Is Portuguese- Italian and Spanish for large, and venti is Italian for large, so... <laughs> like our author, Starbucks leaves no stone unturned. Um, <laughs> I don't want to compare Starbucks to our authors. <laughs> no, God, I'm so sorry, authors. Starbucks, don't sponsor us. Um, <laughs> I mean, if so, you want to throw money our way, we'll take it, but... That is true, that is true. I love your drink, coffee is good. I love your money. I love your money. <laughs> 
<laughs> so yes, going back to our authors, um, all of their predictions or both of their predictions were right on the money. In the community data, there was significantly less skew towards larger, larger dinosaur diversity, which was largely driven by the smaller dinosaurs in individual communities. So basically, if you looked at community by, by community, there was much less of a bias towards larger dinos. This was probably driven, among other things, by areas like prehistoric Argentina, where there were just so, so many large sauropods, or those long neck, long tail ones. And they were absolutely enormous. But yeah, there were things that skewed at that. Um, but, 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 but carnivores in communities in general uh, deviated much more from the global trends than herbivore communities. So again, compared to herbivores, there was much more competition, presumably, uh, disproportionately affecting the size of carnivores compared to herbivores. Okay, Basically, so wait, pause. So yes. like herbivores, it's more of a smooth line. We see some medium herbivores, whereas mm -hmm. carnivores, we only see the biggies and the smallies. Yes. Okay. Um, this trend... What's up? I said onward. <laughs> onward, indeed. Um, so this trend also appears to dismiss the idea of a lack of known smaller dinosaurs in general, because there's no reason that smaller herbivores would fossilize so much more often than smaller carnivores. So we can likely throw that idea out the window. Which okay, means that so because we know there, we find small and medium herbivore fossils, we know that the theory that there are no medium carnivore fossils because medium carnivores don't fossilize well is kind of nonsense yes um right. like like we were talking about before it also doesn't agree with the math that's been the most updated so far on dinosaurs okay. in general um so uh b -b 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 we are dealing with what the authors call and i just like this I, I really like this idea it's a true biological signal if you were to look at the fossil record you would feel a little warmth coming from that corner um i don't know i just like thinking about a it that true way. biological signal it's cool right i like thinking about it that way True biological signal. And that would be coming from the big dinosaur corner? It would be coming from the lack of the middle ones. Ah, oh, okay. When looking at carnivorous communities alone, regardless of sample size, averages, and several other variables, the gap is nearly always consistent in the same way. This implies that the same factors are at play in each community's gap, because no matter what differences in the, the, the data they took, they saw the same trend. It happened over and over and over again. And the exceptions kind of seem to prove the rule. Um, there were only a few exceptions. And these communities are, one, dominated by tiny dinosaurs. So there's almost no big ones. Uh, ba -ba 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 -ba, those with multiple giant herbivore species, meaning that there's not going to be much competition because there's more than enough food to go around. Um, and communities lacking megatheropods. Do you remember what a theropod dinosaur is? Theropods are the ones that are able to keep themselves warmer than the surrounding area. What? No? Thera. Theropod. Hot feet. They have hot feet. I don't know. Oh, so Thero... <laughs> thero means beast foot. Thera. Oh, I was thinking Therma. <laughs> yeah, me for a second there. I was like, when did we talk about this? <laughs> My bad. Okay. <laughs> yes, those dinosaurs with the hot feet. <laughs> Wait, okay, so, so what is Theropod? R so Theropods... I've forgotten. <laughs> they are birds. They are things like Tyrannosaurus rex. They are things like Allosaurus. They're the two-legged bipedal carnivores. Oh, the little arm club. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the little arm club. It's weird yeah. that they choose to call them beast foot when obviously their most charming characteristic is their tiny arms. <laughs> How do you say tiny arm in Latin? Um, armo shorto. 
from English to Latin. What would your arms be? Is an arm like Brac or something? Like Bracciation? Tiny. Bracci, yeah. Tiny. Arm. <laughs> Minima Brachium. Ah, Minima Brachium. I like that. Um, yep, so yeah, <laughs> petition, petition to change theropod to minima brachium. But <laughs> um, at any rate, a mega theropod is any theropod exceeding a thousand kilograms, which is about 2,200 pounds. Um, oh, so like over a ton. Yeah, there were quite a bit of those, by the way. Um, right, so larger than an elephant. Yeah. Lo- yeah, elephants are, aren't they like nine to 14,000 pounds? Anyway, a lot of them are like that too. Um, so what exactly is going on here? If, you know, what's happening? This is so weird. If a comparable gap existed in modern-day Kruger National Park, we wouldn't see any carnivores between the sizes of a 190-kilogram African lion and a 4-kilogram bat-eared fox. They, you, big gap, big gap. Okay, so if, if this, if whatever was happening back then was still happening, we wouldn't have any wild African dogs, we wouldn't have any hyenas, we wouldn't have any cheetahs, nothing between the sizes of that little fox and the big old lion. Precisely. Okay. And while it is true that mammals did live along the, the um, alongside the dinosaurs, they probably evolved right around the same time. Um, none of them known from that era exceeded 15 kilograms. Um, no, we haven't found a single one above 15 kilograms. So very, very unlikely they held those medium predator roles in which they were over a hundred kilograms usually. <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah. So when you say no medium dinosaurs, you mean really very small and very large. So they're either bigger than an elephant, bigger than several elephants, or <laughs> small. <laughs> let's see, what? 15 kilograms. How many pounds is that? Is that like 30, a... 31 about? 31. So nothing bigger than, what would be 31 pounds? Uh, well, like a border Fat cup. raccoon? <laughs> either one of those. Um, but, um, but border yeah. And... fat raccoon. <laughs> Take your pick. Uh-huh. And again, this is not to say that there weren't any dinosaurs known um, between those sizes. There were much more herbivores known compared to theropod carnivores, and they were there. But the fact remains, with the carnivores, you see this massive gap, um, which is what we've just been describing. You wouldn't see any fat raccoons, dinosaurs. All right, so you've set up like an Agatha Christie-style mystery here. Where Mm -hmm. are the medium carnivore dinosaurs, and why are they gone, and why are they here now? I have so many questions. One more uh, confounding variable is the crocodilomorphs, which are the precursors to crocodiles and all of their family, including some terrestrial forms that probably galloped, which is just a fun concept. But um, after the dinosaurs took over, or about 10 to 15 million years afterwards, they pretty much all became semi-aquatic. So not terrestrial, not competing with dinosaurs. Okay. Yeah. So uh, our medium-sized crocodile friends were in the water minding their own business, so they're not a part of this. Mm-hmm. They were probably competing with Spinosaurus, which is a horrifying concept, but um, yes. Who's Spinosaurus? Spinosaurus, did you see, I think it's Jurassic Park 2, the one with the big sail on its back that was bigger than T-Rex? Oh. So those are now thought to be either aquatic or semi-aquatic because of their proportions. Yeah, really, really big things generally are at least semi-aquatic because water helps hold you up, and so you can be more heavy, which is why yeah. the largest animal that's ever lived on our planet is currently alive. It's an aquatic animal. You know him. You hate him. The blue whale? The blue whale. Yeah. <laughs> um, for anyone curious, Spinosaurus also has a long jaw and very conical teeth uh, compared to theropods, which had serrated ones, which would, in modern cases, translate to a very fish-eating lifestyle. So another variable to say it was probably aquatic. 
Um, but this is not about Spinosaurus, even though Spinosaurus is a theropod. Um, as Madison has been asking, why are there no mesopredators? The mesopredator is that medium-sized predator, meso. Where are the medium boys? Where are our grande carnivores? Yeah, so it turns out that there is something that can quite thoroughly explain this dino carnivore gap. Um, it is a phenomenon known as, drumroll please, ontogenetic niche shift. So Life if you recall- genetics <laughs> job change. Life genetics job change, yes. Um, so actually, yes, exactly. Um, this combines autogeny and niche, which is an animal, usually an animal, I wouldn't imagine it could be anything besides an animal, just because of reasons. Um, I'm gonna go with animal. Yeah, it's an animal that switches up its ecological role throughout its life. Oh, um, so an animal that's always changing jobs. I am- Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> so in the non-human animal kingdom, uh, we often see this type of thing in animals with a larval stage, like frogs and butterflies. Uh, caterpillars eat plants, butterflies eat nectar. Um, and with frogs, you, you, you get the point. Um, yeah, so it's an animal that it performs a different job at different stages in its life cycle. Exactly. Um, like um, anacondas, when they're first born, they're real small and they're eating little frogs, but mostly they're food for the larger animals, but then they get to be like 30 feet long and then they eat jaguars. And they're like, I can eat a caiman. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but um, so yeah, these are few from far from the only examples. Um, take T-Rex, for example, whose life history has become one of the best understood of any non-bird dinosaur. We actually have fossils from baby to adult. Um which was a point of contention for a really long time, and you're about to hear why. So this is just, I need to gush about T-Rex for a sec. Um, at adult size, our tyrant king, that's what T-Rex means, tyrant lizard king, which is the coolest thing, um, uh, were, they were large even by megatheropod standards, uh, with body masses in the range of six to 8,000 plus kilograms. The largest specimen we have was in the range of 9,500 kilograms, so big. Um, okay, so 9,500 kilograms... That's going to be... Almost 20, over 20,000 pounds, actually, yeah. 20,000 pounds, wow. Yep, so and they reached that, they did, and they reached that size in under 20 years. Oh, by the way, um, I got to gush about T-Rex for a sec is the episode name. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I like that, I got to write that down. Um, yes, I like that. Um, so they were really big um minus spinosaurus which might not have even been heavier t-rex is not the largest dinosaur out there known anymore in terms of carnivores but it is the heaviest and the scariest um maybe Wait, is it the heaviest overall or just the heaviest on land well the heaviest the herbivore dinosaurs got a lot bigger um until spinosaurus t-rex was the heaviest um but spinosaurus was probably semi-aquatic which means that it's still the heaviest land predator dinosaur so, okay, you know. so yeah, the biggest on land yeah well Le, there were ones that are longer, which is a big contention in dinosaurs. Okay, the uh, heaviest on land. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I had to get all jargony for a second. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, so it, it was big. Um, adults would have also been incredibly bulky and fairly slow moving for their size and their stride length. Um, this has been inferred by the little details on their bones. You can see that there are massive, they might have had the biggest thighs of any animal ever. Which is oh, just oh <laughs> damn, that's sexy. Yeah, <laughs> all right. Indeed, indeed. So you're saying T-Rex had the largest size of any animal? T-Rex was dummy thick. Oh, I'm like into T-Rex right now. What's Maybe that should thing? be the title. <laughs> 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 um, 
So they compensated for this. They were thought to be a kind of ambush predator type animal, may have even been a pack hunter, but there's really no definitive way to prove that. Um, they compensated for this by their immense overall strength. And this is not hyperbole, a bite strong enough to turn the bones of prey into a fine dust. Um, did you know that there's actually a special term for how many theropods fed, particularly Tyrannosaurus? No. It's called puncture and pull feeding, which is exactly what it might sound like. So like puncture, sink those teeth in and then pull, rip a chunk out. Yep. All right. And this is actually backed up by the wear and tear on a lot of dinosaur teeth that have been found. Cool. Cool. Indeed. So um, that's your picture that you have in your head right now. Uh, this is a pretty stark contrast to how our tyrant king would have looked as a tyrant tyke, a little baby. Um, hatchling rexes clocked in at less than 10 kilograms, about 20 pounds. That is, I did the math, that's 600 to 800 times smaller than their parents. That is slightly larger than my cat, Jack. <laughs> um, they probably acted the same too. Um, yeah. So these proportions were... Their proportions were also much different. Um, the baby T-Rexes and even the juvenile T-Rexes looked a lot more like the speedy, quote-unquote, velociraptors you would see in Jurassic Park. Um, even as juveniles, T-Rex specimens were far more similar in body form to their infant state uh, to an adult. Um, so much so that until updated bone science provided the necessary evidence, they were widely regarded as different genre entirely. Not even same species, different genre. Wow. It was called Nanotyrannus. I see where this is going. Do ya? Oh, I'm so happy. <laughs> you oh, get the butterflies like I got the- to myself, no spoilers. <laughs> um, yeah, so in under 20 years, these 10 kilogram speedy bean poles turned into what remain the heaviest and quite possibly strongest biting land predators in science, known to science. With the ever. thickest thighs. With the thickest thighs. <laughs> Um, in between those two points, though, uh, Tyrannosaurus rex would have more than certainly had to switch up its diet and its corresponding ecological role to reflect its body and pursuit style. Keep it juicy, juicy. You eat that keep lunch. <laughs> I'm just going to keep going. <laughs> so the... <laughs> The concept of a dinosaur changing up its niche or its habitat ecological role throughout its life based on body form is certainly not limited to T-Rex and its family. Um, Mega-sized herbivores and carnivores alike have both produced evidence of this in their bone growth and range of young and old specimens available. But the megatheropods had another life history trait in common. Not only did they live and grow really fast, they died super young. Oh, um, like cephalopods. Yeah, it's actually uh, commonly known as the grow fast, die young lifestyle, which... Yeah, live fast, yeah. die young. Indeed. Um, so Wait, what's, what group of animals? What are they called? The megatheropods. So the theropods live above a thousand fast, kilograms. Live fast, die young, megatheropods do it well. <laughs> there's, there's the podcast song. Um, <laughs> so it's not quite clear why this grow fast, die young approach was so very common in megatheropods, but either way, their bones don't lie. The fossil record has don't, produced don't a... Lie in a, in a, in a. <laughs> Thank you, Science Shakira. Um, the fossil <laughs> record... <laughs> I really want to be Science Shakira now. Like, cooler than, than Madison. That's <laughs> my new Instagram handle. Um, the fossil record has produced example after example of giant predators perishing quite soon after reaching maturity. 
Um, inside a living ecosystem, this would much more than certainly skew the population of individuals towards juveniles. And the more medium-sized juveniles running around, the less chance there would be for a truly different species to come in and assume that role. Okay, so therosaurs, like our friend the T-Rex with the thick thighs. Theropods. Ugh, goddammit. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever, our thick thighs. <laughs> yes. Um, these theropods spend so much time as you know, little teenagers and babies running around eating what they need to run to get those thick thighs that they leave no niche, no jobs for other medium-sized dinosaurs because that's, so they, they rule the streets as teenagers <laughs> and then they become the king, real big, Thunder King, and then they die shortly after because they're like, well, I did it, so that's nothing left. That's what we're thinking. Um, moreover, as you move down the dinosaur timeline, you can clearly see the species diversity of those medium to large carnivores shrink as the carnivore gap widens and ontogenetic niche shift intensifies. So in the Jurassic period, that middle period in, in the age of reptiles, we have both very large uh, and medium carnivores. Um, in the large ones were mostly allosaurs, the medium ones were cool ones called ceratosaurs, or they had cool little horns. Um, based on fossil evidence- Capricorn you... dinosaurs. Yeah. <laughs> uh, based on fossil evidence, the juveniles of these evolutionary older or uh, throwback basal megatheropods were much more in line with the body forms of adults. So basically, the older, the far, the more far back you look into like the age of the dinosaur timeline, the more they look the same throughout growth. But as you move into the Cretaceous period, the diversity drops and the ontogenetic niche shift intensifies like crazy. Like, and this is exemplified by, again, their diversity. So okay, in the Cretaceous so wait, period... So you go really far back in history and you have sort of normal baby dinosaurs that look kind of like their adult selves and are spending more time as their adult selves. But as you get yeah. closer to the present, the dinosaurs spend more and more time in their, we'll say, teenage years filling lots of different jobs. Yes. In the um, Cool. Indeed. And... Yeah. Um, so basically, in at by the end of the Cretaceous period, uh, the, the the continents have largely fragmented. But you have two carnivorous dinosaur families in general. There's the Tyrannosaurs, T. Rex, and its close uh, family members in the north, and you have the Abelosaurs, which are another carnivorous family of dinosaurs in the south. There's two. There's a family in the north. Okay. There's a family in the south. Um, so again, diversity has plummeted by by this point. Okay, so we've um, got two families. Now, are they by any chance feuding? Are there two young ones that are going to fall in love, ultimately end up accidentally poisoning each other, and die with a kiss? So my head went to a completely different place. I saw the uh, Tyrannosaurs in a little stand, uh, and the, the Abelosaurs in the other, and they're debating over which um, category you would find in, like, you know, family feud thing. Items in your okay, house. so you saw the two families of dinosaurs on Family Feud, whereas yes. I saw them entangled in Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> both probably happened. Um, there's evidence for both, <laughs> is what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> um, this message is endorsed by the Paleontological Society of America. Um, okay. <laughs> 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 yeah. Um, so again, both of these families, uh, the Abelosaurs and the Tyrannosaurs, they happen to show the most dramatic ontogenetic niche shifts of any megatheropod. So now for some math. Four uh -huh. juvenile... A little bit, only a little bit. Okay. Um, 
Four juvenile megatheropods to have had such an oversized influence on their communities, two things would have had to be true. One, juveniles would have had to make up at least 50% of a species population. And two, the size of those juveniles would have to be within the range of the carnivore gap. Otherwise, it wouldn't make sense. Um, so what they did was they took uh, a population data from mass death sites there's a lot of those in paleontological science, um, of Tyrannosaur and Allosaur, two families of megatheropod families, 10 species in total. They looked at the mass death sites and they found, in fact, that juveniles made up over 60% of the population of every single one of those species. Oh my gosh. So wait, in the later periods when Tyrannosaurus was on Earth, basically the world was ruled by scrappy teenage dinosaurs with thick thighs doing whatever they wanted? Well, not thickest, not the thickest thighs, because those still belonged to the adult T-Rexes, but I can bet their thighs were still pretty thick. All right. Love it. <laughs> I have a new era that I want to live in. Do you, though? <laughs> well, not as me, as one of these teenage tyrants. Okay, okay, good. Because <laughs> not for nothing, I could not think of an animal I would less want to be killed by, a megatheropod. Their bite could split you in half easily. <laughs> well, I mean, that's quick. I would rather be killed by a giant dinosaur than by like a rat really slowly. <laughs> in what scenario would that happen? Um, I get thrown in like one of those prison holes in the ground in the 1700s and there's a rat there and there's me and we stare at each other. So one of us eats the other. How often have you thought about this? <laughs> <laughs> Not often. <laughs> We'll just table that one. Um, right. Let but, us yeah. know, by the way, friends. You can email us. Let us know the uh, the animal that you'd least like to be killed by. <laughs> Hashtag megatheropod. Um, oh, we've gone off the rails. Um, to sum it all up, megatheropod dinosaurs and possibly others reduced dinosaur diversity as a whole by filling different ecological roles as they grew. While the concept of ontogenetic niche shift limiting dinosaur diversity has actually been around for some time, this is the first time that anyone really looked in depth inside of it. Um, it's the first study of its kind to quantify its effects across carnivorous dinosaurs as a whole. Wherever a carnivore gap exists, the juveniles of, of that community's megatheropods reliably match the size of those medium-sized predators that would have evolved in their place had they been able to. Um, it, it, they also talk about something really, really interesting, which is the concept of dinosaur diversity and that maybe we shouldn't be doing it by species. Maybe we should be considering these ontogenetic myth shifts and sort of, I think, I don't think they use the word eco-species because that's not an actual thing. I think I just made that up. But basically, that's what they're arguing for. Um, you know, call it multiple species, still give them the same species name, but sort of acknowledge the fact that they're filling multiple ecological roles. Give them job titles. <laughs> Give them job titles. <laughs> yes. And equitable pay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Just because I have tiny arms doesn't mean I don't deserve it. Yeah, niche titles. That would be a way to categorize them differently instead of categorizing them by their DNA or, you know, by their species. Instead, look at all of the different niches that are being filled to get a more accurate sample of diversity of the time. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Um, just to, you know, compare them to other fossil groups, because comparing different groups of anything is the best way to sort of learn new things about them. So it gives us another measure of dinosaurs, not just by the genre that existed, but, you know, by, again, all the things that they did. Yeah, it's a new lens. It's a new lens. A new perspective. ecological lens. Yeah. So new perspectives, whenever you bring a new perspective into the conversation, that always leads to growth. 
Indeed. Um, Sometimes the new perspective is unwanted, (laughs) (laughs) but then you grow as you react against it. Yeah. Um, that is, (laughs) I learned about this concept, uh, when I was still in, um, uh, college, there was, there's this really big pushback from morphologists, people that use morphology and like anatomy is the main way to diagnose species. They hate geneticists because they're upturning a lot of stuff. They, they call them gene jocks. Uh, <laughs> That's an actual thing I heard from the head of my biology department. Or um, morphologists. I'm sorry, yeah. guys. But listen, times they are a change in. And Indeed. the gene jocks are going to get their comeuppance one day when these job titles come into the books picture. So. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe when we can look into a new There's dimension. room for everybody at the table. Yeah. Okay? Combine your, your you perspective. You can sit with tables. the preps. You can sit with the thick-thighed lizards. Everyone's... <laughs> <laughs> yes, everything you just said. Especially the thick-thighed lizards. I am... We're going to get some weird messages about this. I can tell. Um... I hope we are. Oh, oh my gosh. If any artists are listening, I would love a sketch of our pack of teenage Tyrannosaurus with their thick thighs doing whatever they want. <laughs> I would love it. Oh, boy. Thick thighs can't lies. And they think they're the best. And then like big mama dinosaur comes with the biggest thighs that have ever been on the planet. And she's like, you think you're hot shit? Look at me. This is turning into fan fiction. Sorry. I just, <laughs> I'm, I'm so all about it. <laughs> <laughs> I need a new CW show. Oh, true. Well, there was CW that weird sitcom Natural about- History crossover. <laughs> Didn't they do that really weird sitcom about the dinosaur? Like it was like a Triceratops family or something in the 90s. It was so confusing. Not that I know of. Unless you're talking about Littlefoot, which don't you dare shit Littlefoot. No, Land Before Time is incredible. This was okay, like actual good. people in like fuzzy suits being dinosaurs. Ew. It was strange, to say the least. Also, they canceled the show by- on the internet, Dad? <laughs> no, no, no. This, this, was, this was a real show, and they canceled it by dropping an asteroid on the family, which was, I thought, kind of messed up, because why- <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's, that's how they ended the show. Oh my god, that's dark. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that was that paper. It was so, so cool. And again, I'm almost even going to recommend that everyone read it because it is a little heavy in parts, but it's the most digestible one I've read for this podcast, I will say. That's, I mean, that is really fascinating. I like the way you set it up too. It really felt like we were un- unfolding a mystery, um, <laughs> which is the best way. I mean, like with archaeology, especially, I love There's so much mystery when you're looking into the past and looking for clues. And this is something that I've never heard of before. I had no idea that there were no medium dinosaurs. And I I know that's an overgeneralization, but I had no idea that that this was even a question that was out there. And now I know the answer, which is great. Yeah. The first time I even saw the picture that I showed you, I was like, oh, this is probably talking about the dinosaurs we haven't discovered. But again, my foot was in my mouth by the end of it. Yeah, it was just the teenagers. Mm Mm-hmm. As uh, my chemical romance would say, you fill in the lyrics here. Welcome to the Black Parade. No, no, no. The, the, it's, it's the teenager song. Teenagers oh. sleep out of me. Yeah, that Teenagers one. Teenagers they scare them out of me. Mm-hmm. Tyrannosaur with thick thighs. Oh, wait. The next lyric is they could care less as long as someone will bleed, which is true for predators. Yeah. 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 Yep. We should stop. <laughs> Speaking of predators, um, another thing that I learned about my cat, who is an apex predator, as all oh, yeah? are, 
Um, so you know how cats do the thing where they'll hold like the toy in their mouth and then they'll just kick it with their back feet? Yes, why is that? That's happen? a disemboweling action. Is it really? They grab the thing by the head and then they kick with their feet to get all the guts out so that they don't have to, they don't spoil the meat. So in a prey situation, the claws would be out, right? And they would just kind of be like slowly eviscerating? Yeah, so the, let's say it's a cat eating a mouse. They would like grab the mouse by the face so the mouse can't bite them and then repeatedly kick at the mouse's belly to get all of the entrails out that when they bring that mouse up the tree to eat it later and take their sweet time, all of the gut juice isn't spoiling the meat that they want to eat. That's great. That has the same energy as dog toys uh, deliberately mimicking the sound of a terrified rabbit. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's so precious, though, because when I see him doing it, it's like this pink, fuzzy, like, puffball toy. And I'm like, you think you're disemboweling that? You think you're so fierce? Yeah, generally things lose their magic when you learn about them, but I still like that. And I kiss him right on the head. (laughs) (laughs) Say hi to Jack for me. I will. Well, well, we should probably end things before we go off the rails for a 19th time. Yeah, probably. Um, people do seem to like our shorter format, so we should probably zip it while we're ahead, huh? Yeah, maybe. Um, All right. This is the end of the podcast. Where we do the song, and this is it. Goodbye. Thank you for listening. And please write us a new song. Woo! <laughs> because we clearly are not doing uh, great with it. <laughs> All right, incredible. Also, episode episode name this week. What do you think? Um, I just got a gush about Tyrannosaurus for a sec. Yeah, yeah, I like that. I think so. Mm-hmm. It fits me as a person. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank you so much for listening, everyone. Uh, this was a lot of fun, and we'll see you next week. Yeah. Oh, don't forget to uh, rate review and subscribe those things are what help other people find this podcast and we are trying to spread the word about science so please be a friend uh, and do some <laughs> of those things um if you're like i don't want to share this podcast there was stuff i didn't like about it then please email us let us know the stuff that you want us to change we want to hear from you about don't be too mean though like make like a first draft and then i mean yeah, try not to attack us we are tender um, <laughs> our email is podcast at scienceandpictures.com you can also direct message us on Facebook or Instagram um, we are real people and we will be there to say hey thanks for the feedback so hope to see you there <laughs> yes everything uh, that and uh, goodbye alright and now for the final time goodbye